welcome to the public morality. However, one recalls the decade of the 1960s, it was pregnant with social change. There was a major grassroots movement annually from civil rights to free speech, to feminism, to anti-Vietnam protests and beyond. Americans took to the streets demanding change. And in this current season of social unrest, are there lessons that we could extrapolate from the 1960s? Joining me for this discussion is Professor Cheryl Greenberg. Professor Greenberg teaches African-American history at Trinity College in Hartford, Connecticut. Professor Cheryl Greenberg, welcome to The Public Morality. Thank you for having me. I want to begin this conversation. The, the, the zeitgeist of the 1960s produced an unprecedented display of social justice efforts ranging from civil rights to anti-Vietnam protests uh, to, to um, second wave feminism, as well as other efforts. How do you account for that moment that there's never been a decade prior to that and, I don't, and we haven't had one since? I'm actually not sure that we're not having one now, but um, certainly we hadn't seen anything like it for, for a long time. Um, it's a great question. And I think I would say that um, the civil rights movement, which was a long time brewing, it didn't just explode in the 1960s, um, was a product of all sorts of things happening in terms of race relations and things like that. But once the civil rights movement began, I think its ideology then caught fire among what was then the largest generation of young people that the country had seen right from the baby boom uh, after the war. So there's a whole lot of people trying to rethink ideas in colleges, in high schools at the time. And so they are, all these ideas are percolating and then they spread across essentially young people and then older people who decide that they're right. But this is really largely, these are young people movements. Oftentimes, you, since you, you mentioned that the civil rights movement was a, was a long time in, in, in its development, oftentimes that, movement is remembered as a Herculean effort placed squarely on the shoulders of Martin Luther King. How would you define um, the civil rights movement? I think it's easy for Americans to say, look, here's a person who brought us our freedom and that's Martin Luther King. And it's not that he wasn't important um, or central in so many ways, but I think the civil rights movement was a long, slow, response to the promises of reconstruction after the civil war that were then dashed in the south and the increasing conversation about democracy in world war ii that spur a lot of people to say enough is enough and there are all kinds of efforts that started first even before world war ii of course um, in private areas like the naacp would take things to court right these are very these are non-public um, efforts. But then uh, in the 1950s, really the end of the war, uh, late 1940s, you start seeing mass efforts, that is people responding on the ground to the same ideas of this is, we now know what democracy looks like. We now know what democracy doesn't look like. We know what fascism looks like. And it's time to address our own issues. And so people actually took to the streets. You know, I, I know my students always say, oh yes, Brown versus Board of Ed was the beginning. It wasn't the beginning, it was um, the culmination of one set of processes 
that then galvanized another whole generation. So the Brown decision, for example, was um, the culmination of many, many years of NAACP working through the courts. So then the court says, okay, you can't segregate on the basis of race. And all these young kids say, okay, now we can get an, a, a non-segregated education. And then what happens? We get resistance all over the South. And so by the time the late 50s, early 60s comes, you've got a generation of people with expectations that are not met. And so there's a kind of anger about that that joins this increasingly public struggle. And that's where you start seeing mass actions, everything from bus boycotts to marches and, and protests and uh, freedom rides and things like that. But the goal was always the same, which was we are promised full citizenship, full access to opportunity, and we have never gotten it. And you could make any kind of excuses you want, but it's time to it's time to live up to the American promise to be totally so, st staying with the, the with the grassroots efforts of the civil rights for just a moment. Mm -hmm. um, when you think of the landmark um, civil rights moments of the '60s, whether it's Greensboro, the sit-ins, and or the Freedom Rides, or you know the the Birmingham campaign, Selma, you think of these efforts. Martin Luther King didn't start any of those efforts. They were, they were all done by local grassroots efforts, which really is, I think, what you're addressing right, 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 right there. Exactly. Um, that's right. And as, as I, <laughs> I always like to say, Martin Luther King wasn't Martin Luther King when he started, if you see what I mean. This was some guy, there was a bus boycott, right? And um, in, the, in Montgomery, and there are two political factions in the town, uh, in, in the city, and one faction isn't speaking to the other faction. So they all want to get on, they all want to do something about the buses. This is a, a women's political group that organizes it, and they need someone to be their spokesperson. Well, if they go to one side, one faction, then the other faction is not going to take part. And if they go to the other faction, the first faction is not going to take part. So they look around for someone who is not a somebody. He's a newcomer. So nobody has any political ideas about him. And who is that? This guy named Martin Luther King. So he kind of inadvertently becomes the spokesperson for this group because he's not Martin Luther King, if you see what I mean. He's just, he's a safe person. It turns out that he, he speaks beautifully. He expresses himself powerfully. He taps into the ethos of the whole movement. And so he becomes an incredibly important and powerful spokesperson. But you're absolutely right. He didn't start any of this. And even things like Selma, you know, where Martin Luther King is at the front, he's at the front, but he didn't organize it. In fact, in Selma, there were groups like SNCC that didn't want him to come because what would happen is they would put in all the groundwork, they'd get the people, they'd get everything organized, and then he'd fly in and he'd be the centerpiece and he would get credit. And it, again, it's not to take credit away from him, but absolutely, virtually all of the movement at least in my opinion, was grassroots. That is people acting on their own behalf uh, in support of each other. I don't mean individually, but, um, but not led by and large by these people from the top. Uh, I'm gonna come back to that SNCC relationship uh, a little later on, but I think it's an important piece. I also wanna say for the listeners who already have their emails crafted that we are somehow denigrating the memory of Martin Luther King, we are simply talking about the historical facts. That's, that's all, nothing, nothing more. History is not what we want it to be, it's just what it is. I, I wanted to begin with the Civil Rights Movement, not only for, 
for what it achieved in its influence. But I want to talk about some other areas as well that you sort of alluded to that it did influence. And I want to start, um, if we could, about the 1964 free speech campaign, speech movement that started in Berkeley. How how was that related to the civil rights movement in, in, in that history, if you would? Well, there are several movements that come out of it, and that's one that I think come out of it sort of ideologically, because I think the agendas are the same. But in terms of the free speech movement, it actually comes directly from the civil rights movement because the uh, students from um, Berkeley had spent some, um, some time organizing in the South and they came back and they wanted to have a rally or a pass out flyers or some kind of event around the civil rights movement and the institution said, no, you can't, the college said no. And so they held the rally anyway and police cars came to break it up and they stopped the police cars from leaving and it became this huge uh, rally and demonstration. And that was the beginning of the free speech movement. We have the right to speak, in this case, the right to speak about political action in terms of black equality. So there's a direct relationship there um, in terms of the actions, but what the whole, the fact that it, that speech was shut down was also um, part of the larger story of the civil rights movement, which is people have rights and people should not be denied those rights for political or racial or any other reasons. And so we have the right to talk about what's wrong in the country. We have the right to talk about different issues um, and and how the, the United States isn't living up to its promise. So both the idea of free speech and the actual event were both directly tied, I think, to the civil rights movement. You know, and for great as the civil rights movement was and how it influenced uh, a, gr a great deal of the culture, um, mm -hmm. I think we, we also have to be fair in saying that it was a male-centric movement. And... It, and so you had mentioned 64, um, the students in 64 and, uh, who were organizing down, down in Mississippi. You can't talk about Mississippi without talking about the leadership of Fannie Lou Hamer. Absolutely. I mean, the women's movement is also part of what comes out of, of the civil rights movement for what you're saying now, which is that the civil rights movement was a male dominated movement. Um, really, not only in terms of the people that we think of, but in terms of who was able to speak and who was able to have leadership positions. Um, and again, this is just reflecting the society. It's not that civil rights workers were any particular form of patriarchal or, or sexist. It was just sort of how it went. And also it was dangerous and the sort of patriarchal notion of protecting women kicked in. But the point is that all the spokespeople were um, male. Uh, the main writers and speakers were male. and so. People who did their organizing behind the scenes or people who were on the front lines who were often women didn't get credit. So Fannie Lou Hamer, for example, was a sharecropper who started organizing for the civil rights movement, lost her job, uh, ended up getting more involved in the movement. She's traveling and uh, gets pulled off of a bus, again, for violating um, segregation rules and she's beaten within an inch of her life, I mean, literally, she never was healthy again after this beating. And she is the one who goes and testifies uh, in front of the Democratic National Committee to say what happened to her and how she was personally hurt and affected by 
inequality and the struggle for civil rights and the brutality that came after it. And she was incredibly powerful speaker. Um, and she was an incredibly powerful organizer. So now we know about her, but at the time, people certainly had heard her voice in, in that testimony, but by and large, we think about also important people like Julian Bond and Bob Moses and, and those folks um, who were leading the, the struggle most visibly. So there are a whole host of people. The SNCC that we talked about a minute ago was a student movement, but uh, it was brainstormed and supported by a woman who never gets enough credit. Um, so there's all kinds of ways in which women are behind the scenes and now we celebrate them, but it took a while um, for them to get that credit in the first place. And it's out of that frustration in a way, um, as well as the ideology, I know I keep coming back to ideology, but that, that then results in a you know, women's movement or what we now call second wave feminism, right? Which is black people are saying, we are important, we are valuable, black is beautiful, that kind of stuff. And women are saying, oh, wait a second, so are we, we're ignored too. We're second class citizens also. Um, and if women, if black is powerful, as black is beautiful, then sisterhood is powerful, right? And they start addressing their own inequality and imbalance, which puts black women in a very awkward position. So that's, we could talk about that, but all it, I mean it, is that, go ahead. No, we, we, we will talk about that. And, and, and that's just a wonderful segue to, to where I wanted to go with this conversation anyway, which, which was, um, the civil rights movement, I think the unintentionally creates the momentum, as you just alluded to, to, to second wave feminism. First of all, talk about the importance of um, Betty Friedan's 1963 book, uh, The Feminist Mystique. Talk about the importance of that text. And we'll, we'll go on from there because there's a lot to unpack in, in, in this as well. Yeah, I'll say. Um, Betty Friedan, it's actually, it's, there's a really interesting history behind this story. Um, she went to women's college and um, was a, I think she, she started as a journalist of some sort. But anyway, she started um, looking at uh, sexism essentially in work, in work, at work, and discovered that, um, um, that flight attendants were all young women and uh, they were very poorly paid. And what she discovered was that they were poorly paid because they had, they'd had very little job uh, tenure. They didn't stay in the job very long. And the reason they didn't stay in the job very long is that the job, you could only have the job if you were single and if you were under 30. And everybody thought, well, of course, because stewardesses should be young and pretty, right? But it wasn't about young and pretty. There's nothing about young and pretty that has anything to do with air travel, right? But what it had to do with was they could not never form, they wouldn't have enough time to form a union. They wouldn't have enough time to develop seniority pay, right? So they could have a docile, low paid workforce without anybody questioning it because no one was saying, oh, you're just trying to pay us less. They're saying, no, of course they should be pretty. Of course they shouldn't be married as if this was a place to pick up women or something like that. So she started asking these questions about uh, what was happening and these assumptions, and then did a study, I think of her graduating class, if I'm not mistaken, and found that a whole lot of women who were well-educated then got married, moved to the suburbs, raised children, and were bored out of their minds, and felt guilty about it because they were supposed to have everything, 
I mean, right, they had these lovely suburban houses, they had husbands who provided for them, but they were unhappy, but they didn't know how to talk about it even because it was embarrassing. So she, she called it a problem that has no name and talked about this frustration of essentially educated women who had nothing to do but raise kids and take them to baseball games, whatever, um, softball games, and how this was not a personal problem, which is what all the women thought, there's something wrong with me that I'm not satisfied, but this was a condition of a sexist patriarchal society that said that women should stay home and not use their brains, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so out of that comes, there's a few more steps, but uh, the National Organization of Women now, uh, which is an organization formed in order to combat sexism and um, patriarchy, essentially, in, in society, in the workforce. The reason that it's problematic for some people is, of course, it presumes that you have the luxury of being a stay-at-home mother in the suburb, right? Poor women did not have that option. Black women mostly did not have that option. And so the idea that you should be working was a kind of middle-class white conceit in a way. Um, and there, was, there were all kinds of pressure on that movement, but that movement itself comes from this, what we call second wave feminism, comes from that book and all these people saying, what, I'm not alone? Mm. And, and we're going to come back to some of that um, that fractious nature that you just alluded to as well. Um, but during the same time, the feminist mystique comes out. I mean, you know, you think about this how this how this history converges. Like you have this civil rights movement that sort of stirs the zeitgeist, and you have Betty Friedan's book that no one has said these things publicly. Then you, the, and you talked about educated women. So you have this educated woman, a freelance journalist by the name of Gloria Steinem, who gets a, takes a job um, to be a Playboy bunny undercover and then mm -hmm. writes this stinging critique. Talk about, and it's going to get back to the point that you were making about now and some of that fractious nature, but talk about the importance of that work by Gloria Steinem. Gloria Steinem had a, uh, she's amazing. She had a much more, it doesn't sound radical now, but much more radical critique even um, than Betty Friedan, who of course was also radical for her time, because Betty Friedan was really saying, um, American women get out of your comfortable suburban zones and get to work and essentially enter society because we're as good as, as men are, which again was revolutionary. But Gloria Steinem said, there are fundamental assumptions in this society that that put women at a disadvantage in every way. We are sexually stereotyped. We can't. One of the. It's not that we can't get jobs. It's that they hire us because we have good legs, right? That there are certain assumptions about what we can do and who can do it and um, what women's roles are that are much bigger than just who gets into the workforce. And that kind of, uh, as you said, Playboy bunny critique. Um, was really powerful for women who were not as middle-class um, structured in, I mean, coming from a middle-class perspective um, as Betty Friedan, and so had a more radical take. And by that, I include, with that, I include, of course, many of the women who had been radicalized by the civil rights movement. And again, who had realized there's something fundamentally unfair about the way we are treated as a class, just like black people are treated poorly as a class. And we need to look at that. And Gloria Steinem, I think, really spoke to those kinds of um, 
even more radical politics. So with, with that said, we're still, I mean, it's amazing to think um, we, we started this conversation about talking about the 60s and we're pretty much if, if haven't gotten any further than 1963, <laughs> which, which is also the year that President Kennedy signs equal pay for equal work. So is that the first, is that like the groundbreaking legislation in that second wave feminism movement? In many ways, yes. Um, he was pressured to, to create that um, that uh, task force, and um, and this all had to do. I mean, the, Betty Friedan was part of that whole effort, right? That's what now comes out of is that is that analysis. And again, by our standards today, it's pretty meek and mild. Um, but yeah, it was it was really it was important in two ways. First of all, it's important that they did it at all, right? They had identified a problem, and it's a little bit like Truman had a commission on um, commission on the study of the Negro, I think it was called, or whatever it was. But in in 1943, I think, um, and it was also revolutionary, not necessarily in what it accomplished, but the fact that they had it, right? That it was that it was a conversation, um, and so in that sense, Kennedy really started the conversation on a national level that women had already started, of course. But I mean, giving it a, a state platform. Um, to go on. It was resisted in all kinds of ways. Uh, and and actually, one of the ironies of the 1964 Civil Rights Act, which you may get to, is that, um, as I'm, you and your listeners know, certainly, um, has sex in there as, a, as something you can't discriminate against, right? Race, race or sex. And everyone says, you see, this is a great feminist uh, success. But it wasn't. The word sex was put in there by a Southern uh, congressperson who said, I want to, I want to destroy the entire piece of legislation. I don't believe that black people should have equality. So I'm going to put in a group so absurd that no one's going to vote for it. So let's say everybody has, you know, can't be discriminated against on the basis of sex, because we know that's ridiculous. But the momentum for civil rights was strong enough that it passed despite the fact that it said sex. And that is, has been landmark I mean, huge legislation for women, but ironically, inadvertently. You know, when you said that, how ironic when, when I'm recalling when the um, 13th Amendment was being considered in Congress, I think it was Charles Sumner who wanted equality under the law, equality for all mm -hmm. the law. And it was pushed back for that language, because if we do that, that means women might want to vote. So right. we, we, we can't have we, we, we can't have that. And the other thought I had when you're given the, you know, Kennedy famous for his press conferences. Um, he was asked about what was he doing um, consistently by, by a woman journalist? What was he doing, con, you know, consistent with the platform for, for women's equality? And he just has a sort of deadpan Kennedy-esque look. And he says, well, I'm sure we're not doing enough. So it's, it's kind of uh, so I had both of those thoughts now. Another notable point, I, I want to combine these two conversations we've just been having. Um, the efforts that we've been referring, you know, that while, while there was collective agreement in sort of the, the macro desire for change, there were different beliefs on how that could be, achi could be achieved. I mean, for example, mm -hmm. Martin Luther King's SCLC was not congruent with SNCC or the, or the Black Power Movement, which came along later. And for that matter, you sort of touched on this. And I'd like to have you say more about it. And, 
in addition, Betty Fernand's Fernand's feminism was not Gloria Steinem's or or a name we haven't mentioned yet, Polly Murray. Say say more about both of those, if you would. Exactly. Uh, I think we see we see those movements, those changes in the movement is distinct, but really the tensions within them were always there. So, uh, for example, in the civil rights movement, right there, King and the SCLC, as you said, first of all, who's a top-down organizer as opposed to Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee and CORE, which are bottom-up organizers. So that's already a difference. Um, but there's also a tension between folks who say what we need is to get into society, we need to be educated, uh, we need to have access to opportunities that are the same as other people have, and others who say, no, integration is not the way. Not only will white people never accept us, so it's hopeless, but to join white society is essentially cultural genocide, right? They're going to kill us. We're, we're being too, we shouldn't be nonviolent because they're just taking the advantage to kill us, right? Because we're not hitting back. We may want to, we may like things about white society, but the fact is white society is also patriarchal and racist and hierarchical, and we don't like those things. And so, and the same with the, with the women's movement that, so these tensions, I'm sorry, interrupting myself. So these tensions between a more nationalist or um, self-defense kind of effort, um, black power kind of effort, has al is always running alongside the nonviolent integration effort, but the tensions eventually um, shift the balance between the two uh, as enough people get killed protesting and uh, enough white people, enough laws get passed that say there should be integration and there isn't, right? All those things then push the black nationalist or black power agendas more actively in the community. And the same thing happens with women, right? Again, some people believe that all we want to do is get into the system. We want to be more like men. And then uh, Pauli Murray and, and um, Angela Davis isn't it right there are a whole group of women who say we don't want to be just like them we believe in something that's very different from them we have a whole different ethic uh, than that mainstream society has and so we don't want to be a part of it we want to reshape it now that would be enough to fill a decade to fill a decade but we are I think, I think, more. I, think <laughs> I, I think we also have to add that not long after these efforts are underway and influencing how about the 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 uh, importance um, that the civil rights movement has on the anti-vietnam uh demonstrations um i mean there have been any war protests in the past but vietnam in retrospect felt different and, and, and is that accurate and if so how, how would you see it it's absolutely accurate i think um and again, you're gonna be sorry you invited the historian on uh, to talk to you because it's always complicated. We make everything complicated. Um, one of the reasons that the Vietnam War protests were so much more dramatic is media, right? When, this, when carnage happens in your living room on television, it's a very different war. If we had seen World War II footage as it was happening, I'm not sure we would have been quite as pro World War II, to be honest. It wasn't just that Vietnam was considered an unjust war. I'll get to that in a second. But just the fact that we were seeing it, I think, transforms public opinion. So I just, I wanted to start with that. Um, but other than that, 
first people who spoke out about Vietnam really um, were largely civil rights activists. Um, and the argument that they made essentially was, we are oppressing our own people. So why are we going somewhere else and essentially oppressing those people, right? We are fighting a war over race in another place while we're, we should be fighting a war over racism here. So the, um, the contradictions of that led, again, famously Martin Luther King, but before him, SNCC put out a, an anti-Vietnam uh, statement, right? Well before uh, anyone from the, um, the larger community was interested in, in that, and in fact led to uh, Johnson pulling back his support for civil rights organizations because they opposed the war. So part of this, again, is this ideology about <clears throat> let's face our own hypocrisy and, and treatment, and then let's look at what we're really doing in Vietnam. Or isn't this more oppression on the same lines that we're seeing it? But I think the other weird link between um, the protests against the war and civil rights is that civil rights was a black protest. There were certainly white people who joined in the protest. There's no question. But as soon as anti-war issues emerged, many, many white people, white men particularly, shifted their energy to anti-war. Not because they weren't committed to civil rights in all fair, in fairness, but in part because they themselves were gonna be drafted. And so the threat of going to fight an evil war is a sort of existential threat to them. And so in a way, Vietnam becomes the white civil rights protest, if you, if you see what I mean. There's, we think of civil rights as this great, huge, uh, multicultural, multi-ethnic group, and it was, but more white men are showing up against the war, um, radicalized by the civil rights movement, but for their own reasons. You, you started this last response with so, something that I think is really, really important for this, that, that sort of defines this decade. Of all these efforts that we're talking about, there's a through line called television. And, and, and really talk about the importance, because this is also, it's no coincidence, this happens to be the decade where television becomes the medium by which a majority of Americans get their information. Yeah, and actually it's, I. I teach a course actually called from uh, from civil rights to Black Lives Matter, and one of, one of the focuses of the course is what did the civil rights movement teach us that is important to know today? And uh, I mention that because I think I've been thinking a lot about this, obviously. And there's both the ideologies, right, the, a radically different way to understand society, but there's also strategic moves that they made. And one of the strategic moves that they made was to use media. And because you don't have a movement if people don't know about it. And so you're absolutely right. If you have newspapers, then you have pictures and newspapers. And it's not that that's not important. But the media is in your living room. And it's in everybody's living room. And it's in everybody's living room north and south, right? There, are, It's a national kind of uh, exp expression. Um, raises this issue for the first time with people who had not thought about it or resisted thinking about it or um, were opposed to it even. And so the, the way in which media gets our attention 
transforms American conversations, right? And so you're absolutely right. Part of the reason uh, that we now act the way we do is a different kind of media, right? But it's once people know, it's much harder to ignore. You know, going back, you know, going back to Vietnam, it seems, um, it, at least in my perspective, that coming out of the '60s, um, there was a systematic pushback not to replicate these things. So let's just take Vietnam for example. By my estimation, the lessons learned from Vietnam, based on what about America, I'm not talking about the lessons learned, but the lessons learned based on uh, America's public policy practices, was one, you couldn't, no journalist could go to Dover Air Force Base and film troops coming home. Right. And, and two, any military efforts going forward, we would conflate that effort with the dignity of the soldiers who served. Your Absolutely. Thoughts? I have never heard anyone else say this. This is, this is exactly my, <laughs> my position. The irony that the to me, the result of the Vietnam War is that we become more supportive of the armed forces. Uh, not that individual soldiers weren't, I'm not, I'm not dismissing the bravery and the, the issues facing soldiers, but the sort of thank you for your service thing. We have now become so devoted to armed presence anywhere, uh, first of all. And second of all, exactly as you said, after the Vietnam War, they wouldn't let journalists anywhere near it. And in fact, if you think about the Iraq War, for example, journalists said, we need to be there. And they said, fine, you're gonna stay in the hotels. And when the journalists said, no, we need to be, we need to be there, they would embed them carefully with specific troops, right? Led by specific people in specific areas to completely control the narrative. And again, if I were a general, I'd do the same thing. I think it's very smart, but it is scary to people who thought that the Vietnam War should have taught us different things, that it taught us exactly what, uh, what you're saying, that, that war is always good and our troops are always good and our, um, anybody who criticizes them is anti-patriotic and doesn't care about the human beings that we're putting in harm's way, which is sort of exactly the opposite. Right, the Viet the protests were to save these people's lives, and now it's we're not we're not helping them by trying to take them out of harm's way. So I think it, you're absolutely right. Human beings learned one, or I should say, progressives learned one thing, and the government learned another. Same with Vietnam for a second. When you know when when Diem was overthrown in '63, mm -hmm. Vietnam was not on a lot of people's radar screens. Right. It's really 66, 67, 68, where, where Vietnam really gets gets on the radar screen. Unfortunately, the escalation had already started in August of 65. Right. And in June of 65, there were memos sent to President Johnson. Right. That this war is not winnable. I think it was George Ball who sent that mem memo. Exactly. This, this war is not winnable by any metric we use to define victory. Is Viet, given the escalation that happened, given the escalation happened with post George Ball's memo, in your view as a historian, is where does that rank as the immoral enterprises conducted by this government? 
There's a lot to choose from, I, I know, but. <laughs> oh, uh, yeah, exactly. I mean, I, to me, not speaking to the sort of level of atrocity here, um, to me, the absurd irony of the situation was that he did know that we couldn't win. But he had the hawks breathing down on him that we should, you know, drop nuclear bombs on them. And the dove saying pull out entirely. And so the bombing campaigns were actually a compromise between those two. And at least he, as he understood it, right, he had to navigate those pressures. And so he ended up escalating the war, first of all, in secret, right? And people didn't have any idea what was happening. I mean, people in Vietnam sure knew what was happening. Right. But we didn't know. We didn't know about the, the invasion of Cambodia. And we didn't know about those things here. It was kept secret. Um, and it was an escalation without losing, without using troop in some senses and without using nuclear weapons. So for for him, he couldn't get a for Johnson. I mean, he couldn't get out because that was giving into the doves. That was just in, in, impossible. And he was probably right about that. Um, because this was a, a war against communism, and um, and that was very difficult to get out of. And on the other hand, he knew it wasn't winnable, so how much are you going to throw at it? And so again, he throws bombs, which are the cheapest and least destructive of American manpower um, way to do it. So it's, of course it's appalling. I mean, there's no question that it's appalling. But what's sad about it is that it was, the, it was his only political option in a way, he would have lost if if he had pulled out. I mean, that's the irony of all of this is that whatever war we get into becomes a patriotic commitment. And if you're against it, right, you, well, you know, this is always this has always been true and it continues to be true. Iraq, every everywhere else, if you oppose it, you are not a good American. And so the campaign, the Vietnam Vietnamese campaign uh, operates in this sort of middle ground because the American public and the American right won't let it leave, won't, won't let us leave. And um, the peaceniks uh, are hesitant, and actually so are the presidents usually, about getting us into really even deeper war. Um, so I think that was, that's one thing, but I did want to say something else about the increase in attention in 66 and 67, um, which is that in the beginning, the first few years, Democrats were for the war. This was not, I mean, we think about this as, you know, the Republican war makers and the Democratic peaceniks. That wasn't true at all. Most of, of American uh, Congress, rep, rep, all the politicians, they were in favor of the war. They really understood this wrongly as a Democratic attempt against um, a communist power. Well, we know, and actually many of the people at the time knew that that was ridiculous. Right. As you say, there's a coup. We help a coup. That's not a that's not a democracy. Let's not pretend. But this is the whole um, civil. This is the whole uh, Cold War era of the fight against communism. And so it becomes very difficult to defend against that. Earlier, you talked about um, it's problematic to have historians um, on the show because the answers are complicated. So in that spirit, I'm going to have you wax at a, a com not complicated in terms of difficulty, but just complicated in terms of understanding Vietnam type question. To really understand, I mean, again, the, in my view, the, 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 it's, the common assumption is 
to blame Johnson. And uh, I would say that Lyndon Johnson did things, some of the you've alluded to, Golf of Tonkin and others, that warrants criticism. There's, there's, there's no question about that. But if we're going to be honest about Vietnam, could, couldn't we say that it was a quagmire that sort of begins in 1945 when the French are allowed to return and colonize Indochina? Um, Eisenhower has some responsibility when he ignores the Geneva Conventions to hold free elections. Um, we forget in 1945, Ho Chi Minh speaks to United Vietnam after defending, after defeating Japanese, which makes Vietnam a de facto ally in World War II. And he begins by saying all men are created equal. That those words sound vaguely familiar to me. Kennedy escalates the, the um, number of military advisors and people say they're advisors. They had sidearms, they went on missions, so they were soldiers. Um, oh, and and as you as you talked about, and backing a coup, so mm -hmm. this is sort of the thing that is placed in Johnson's lap, and I don't know what mm -hmm. he could have done other than what he did. I, I know we're, we're mm -hmm. already in, we're already jeopardizing having denigrated the legacy of King. Now we're, <laughs> now we're about to be apologists for Lyndon Johnson, but I'm going to give I'm going to give the floor over to you now, <laughs> so I can defend it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you're absolutely right. First of all, he doesn't have a lot of foreign policy experience. And so, and a lot of historians have made this point, he relies on Kennedy's advisors. And Kennedy's advisors are the very people who got us into this, and Eisenhower's advisors too. So you're absolutely right. He doesn't, I don't, I don't want to say he doesn't know better, that's rude, but he's following the same advice that those other folks are, are doing. And as I said before, he's choosing a middle ground between the two positions. And in that sense, he's doing the best he can. Um, I think you could throw Korea into the mix too um, of your discussion about the um, about the area because you're absolutely right. We know we never pretend it's about democracy. Ho Chi Minh came to us first and said, "Will you support my revolution for democracy against uh, the government?" I mean, I'm sorry. During the revolution, he looked to us. He said, "I'm inspired by the American Revolution. Will you support us?" And we said, "No," because you're supported by the Chinese. And they're communists, so we're not going to support you. So he turns away from a potential, a lot, and I don't know if it was to be an alliance, but at least a, a working, a willingness to work with the United States because he was a communist. Um, they didn't see him as a homegrown nationalist um, who believed in his country. They just saw him as under the thumb of the communists. Uh, and so we just took that, we took that reading of the Cold War and we took it everywhere. We took it to the Middle East, we took it um, to Korea, we took it here, right into Vietnam. And so the, all of our foreign policy was about fighting the Cold War without actually nuking it out with the Soviets or the Chinese. And Vietnam is one of the places we did that. And there's no question about it. And I would just say one other thing. The French coming back in absolutely was problematic in a kind of colonial way. But to me, it was uh, the fall of Dan Bien Phu when the Chinese, the French, I mean, are essentially, they leave the country and we decide to go in. At that point, we could have said, we recognize democracy, we recognize that colonialism is over, et cetera, et cetera, but we don't. We move in to be the colonial power. And I think that's where we give up any pretense that we're talking about a democratic state. 
as you think about the 60s, when did cynicism, in your view, become part of the, the American narrative? And I think that cynicism is, is still very much with us. No question. No question. I think about this a lot, actually, um, because I know when I was growing up, which was now many years ago, of course, um, we kind of trusted the government in some ways. Here there were problems, but it wasn't like they were lying to us or anything. And then we find we get the Pentagon Papers, and then we get um, Watergate, and then we get all these ways in which, and as you say, the Gulf of Tonkin and all those, the, the information we didn't have before. And we discover in the 1960s and early 70s that the government had been lying to us all along. And not just on foreign policy, of course, we've got COINTELPRO, which is the FBI attempt to undermine the civil rights movement by doing everything from trying to make Martin Luther King kill himself um, to being in cahoots with the, the clans sometimes to um, organize violence. There's all kinds of ways in which the government lied to us top to bottom on everything. And it's really hard to come back after that and leave anything that a leader says because they said all the right things before and they were lying. And I think um, that's then only borne out when you have later issues like Iran country. But you see, you see, it's true. Uh, and again, I understand that countries have to operate in secret sometimes and they have to do things that they're not going to talk about. I do understand that, but it doesn't make it easier as a citizen to believe that they're doing things for the right motives. We began this conversation, I sort of outlined my thoughts about um, the decade of the 60s. And I, and I um, said words to the effect that we may, may not see its like again. And, and, and you seem to be uncertain about that, that um, we, in the present moment, there may be some overlap. Um, here's your opportunity to, to push back on my initial supposition and, and talk about uh, where we might see something, we might see something similar in the present moment. I am one of the worst cynics that I know. Uh, and so you're giving me a rare opportunity to actually sound positive uh, and optimistic for change. And that is that I, I actually had high hopes for the 90s because there, were, there was activism in the 30s during the Depression. There was act 60s. I thought okay, it's time for another one. And there was some murmurings, but I hadn't seen it. But the past decade or so, President Trump notwithstanding, I have seen a tremendous explosion of interest. Uh, among the same sorts of people who led the feminist movement and the civil rights movement and the anti-war movement, which is to say um, a challenge to the, to the systems that we had been acquiescing to for, for a long time. So the um, Black Lives Matter campaign, which of course continues, is to my mind the largest expression of uh, civil rights since the 60s, if not even more than that, and more deliberately uh, broad. So it includes LGBTQ issues, and it includes women's issues, and it includes all different kinds of equality um, that bring in more support and energy. Uh, and I think it's incredibly exciting if you look at the kinds of organizing that people are doing. Uh, one thing that I think the civil rights movement got right, ironically, is that they focused on local stuff. Yes, we talk about the 
um, bill, the bills and, and um, court cases, but really this is day-to-day -day organizing in local communities that then builds a kind of base. And I think that's what Black Lives Matter is doing. It is building a base among all sorts of people who wouldn't otherwise be noticed, who are laboring in the vineyards, you know, in their own, in their own areas and pulling them together. And I think you saw the same thing with Occupy, uh, Occupy Wall Street, right? They're not, they don't exist in exactly the same way, but people talk about them. We still talk about the 99%, right? They started a dialogue about economics and capitalism and inequality that we are still talking about. Um, and again, the same thing with, uh, with women's rights. Thank you, Supreme Court. Um, there are all kinds of ways in which young women are returning, I think, to a struggle that they thought we'd already won and so weren't necessarily paying kind of attention to. Uh, and then add global warming. My, the reason that I'm optimistic in such a terrible time, and it is a terrible time, is my students. For the first time in a really long time, I have, my students are saying, we're gonna change it. We're doing something about it. They're really upset. And it's not just that they're saying this. These are students who are really engaged in things and they know things, they follow the news and they get involved. And I think, uh, my own, I see it in my own kids. They're really committed to thinking some of this stuff through. And I know in the 1960s they were too and we're sort of back where we were. So I understand the limits, but I think we could actually see some real fundamental changes in some of the ways that we're thinking about economic equality, um, social equality, opportunity. At least I'm optimistic that um, people younger than me will fix the stuff that we didn't fix. Professor Cheryl Greenberg, Trinity College, I want to thank you so much uh, for joining me today on the public round. I really appreciate your insight and discussion. Oh, it was my pleasure. The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at Byron at publicmorality.org. That's Byron, B-Y-R-O-N at publicmorality.org. You can follow me on Facebook as well as Twitter. The archive broadcast can be found on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon Prime, and SoundCloud. Those listening to the Paul McRally on WSNC can now listen on its app. Using your mobile device, simply go to your application page, search WSNC 90.5, and click open to listen from anywhere. And once again, I want to thank Elvin Jenkins and Michael Burns at WGAB in Huntsville, Alabama, for allowing us to broadcast the Paul McRally at their studios. The Paul McRally is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at The Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams.